I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So, yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And in the French student worker uprising in May of 1968, 50 years ago, some of the most inspiring words were written as graffiti. Be realistic. Demand the impossible. I'll say that again. Be realistic. Demand the impossible. Throughout history, meaningful change has only come from applying this seemingly outlandish principle. A black president, the most obvious example. Now comes the idea of a shared public wealth fund. Instead of government-run programs, which require people in a myriad of government agencies to determine worthiness of each welfare case, a blanket investment fund might practically eliminate those monstrous layers of bureaucracy and instead leave decision-making up to each individual. As we get deeper into the 21st century, there's no question there's going to be a lot of displacement and downright elimination of jobs as artificial intelligence and robotics replace many traditional sources of work and thus income. Sweeping the challenges and opportunities under the rug is certainly not an option, and a potential solution, which we will discuss today, might also address the ever-widening gap between the super-rich one-tenth of one percent and the rest of us by democratizing economic decision-making. No, we're not talking about some silly pie-in-the-sky leftist fantasy, unless you want to call President Nixon a far-out lefty, because in 1971, he, with the support of other conservative leaders, called for just such a thing, a universal basic income. It's an old idea, actually a very old idea, whose time has come around again. Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, we're going to explore the case for giving America, every American a share of a public wealth fund. It holds the bright prospect of a much stronger American economy because of greatly stimulated demand. Over the past two years, universal basic income has picked up a lot of steam. Countries around the world uh, are now pursuing the idea, and there's been a flurry of media on the topic. However, most people in the United States have never heard of it. And those words from our guest, Jim Pugh, co-founder of the Universal Income Project, a nonprofit devoted to the expansion of economic security and human dignity through the implementation of a universal basic income. Jim, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Glad to be here. Well, again, Jim is the founder and CEO of Share Progress, and he previously served as the director of analytics and development for President Obama's 
Organizing for America. Jim has a Ph.D. in distributed robotics from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, Switzerland. Sounds lovely. Well, again, thanks for being with us. In late August of this year, 2018, something called the American Solidarity Fund was proposed. If you would please tell us about the idea, how it works, and how it came about. Sure, I'd be happy to. The American Solidarity Fund is a very concrete proposal for how we might eventually move to having a universal basic income in the United States. And what, what the proposal says, this is put out by Matt Brunig with the People's Policy Project Think Tank. He proposes creating what's called a social wealth fund for the United States. And what that would mean is to create this fund of shared wealth. It's basically a public resource that everyone shares ownership in. And that fund would be built up by looking at the wealth that we already have in our society that typically is concentrated amongst the very wealthy, amongst large corporations, and saying the public deserves a share of that, that we should be taking a, a chunk of the equity of the companies that are out there, looking at, at all these concentrations of wealth, and moving this into the public sphere. Once that money is in place in this fund, it would be invested, much like uh-huh. a mutual fund, mm. in stocks and bonds and the various things that wealthy people put their money into. Mm-hmm. And then over time, as we have seen for many, many years, that those investments are going to provide a return. And that return would be paid out as a universal dividend, where every person in the country would actually be receiving a check or, or direct deposit into their bank account every year or eventually perhaps more frequently, so that they are receiving this unconditional cash on a regular basis that it's really theirs, that the idea is this is, this is a public shared resource and, and that is their legitimate return, and that over time, as the sun were built up, that eventually could get to the level where everyone in the country was receiving enough cash that they could actually cover their basic needs. And so that's when it becomes a real universal basic income that ensures no one can fall into deep poverty. Wow. There's a lot to that, my goodness. And my first reaction would be that uh, is there some sort of taking from the rich and giving to everyone else? And wouldn't they kind of freak out at that? <laughs> well, a lot of the, there's different ideas for where exactly the, the funds come from here, but a lot of it is really framed in the idea of gain sharing, that it's taking this, this wealth that is being produced at an ever-increasing rate in our society and is saying that let's actually figure out a way so that we all partake in that growth of our economy. And so rather than going to, to individuals and saying, oh, like let's apply a tax on money you've already earned or, or let's increase your income taxes, it's instead saying let's look for how we can share prosperity here. And so, yes, compared to our existing model, that does mean that certain corporations, certain individuals are going to have to share more of what they're producing. But the whole idea is that this is a more just distribution for for what for the success that broadly we're seeing as a country. Well, I have to wonder, again, trying to see this from kind of a traditional point of view, people like to think in America that if you invent something, if you work hard, if you 
you know, put a lot of sweat equity into something, you should get rewards for that. Now, this would not do away with people's ability to become wealthy, would it? No, absolutely not. That it is still, this is a, this fund is premised on the idea that we have a well-performing economy that is actually allowing people to be able to, to be very successful. So it's not, I, I would say it's stepping away from this binary distinction that either you have successful people on their own or you have success as a society and saying we can do both. Ah. That if you have a great idea for a company, if you pursue a path that compensates you well, that's still going to happen. It just means that you will be sharing more of that success with everyone else at the same time. And it does seem to me that a subsistence is, <laughs> you know, not everybody would want to stay at that barely surviving level. I mean, right now, people don't even have that. But, uh, you know, I would think 99.9% of people, if not more, would want to do better than a mere subsistence level that we're talking about here. But at least that would be a floor that people uh, from which people could not fall any further. Would, would such a fund function like the fund created by Franklin Roosevelt, the Social Security Fund, where instead of capital being in the control of private interests, money is invested for the common good of the entire population? That's something that has happened and is still working. Yeah, I think there's definitely parallels here. The idea that we are going to, to set up this reserve that ensures that, that we're providing this, this certain level of support uh, I think that you can, if you want to think about distinctions, the sorts of the risk levels of investments for if you're tra- if you're creating a fund specifically targeted towards the elderly, you probably want something a little bit lower risk than if you're talking about something yeah, that's supposed to be lifelong. But uh, having this money go in there and using that to be able to to pay out, um, I think. One distinction you could potentially make is that because Social Security, there is that idea that you contribute over your career, and then once you retire, getting that money back. Mm-hmm. I would say there's somewhat more of a individualistic perspective that might come with that. Uh-huh. Whereas with the the Public Wealth Fund, the Social Wealth Fund, the idea is really that this is truly something that belongs to all of us. And so uh, I, th- I think that with that in mind. The, the way the fund operates, paying out universally, um, and the idea of this is really a public resource may lead to different uh, different views as, as to how we want to, to treat that in, in our policies. It's quite an interesting uh, area, and you know, all the negativity these days, it's nice to hear potentially very positive ideas. And Talk about negative ideas. Every now and then, Wall Street interests put forth a plan to privatize Social Security so that the interests there can reap the rewards, basically. (laughs) Why is that not a good idea? And how does that speak to the soundness of a public wealth fund, on the other hand? I would say that goes back to, to what I was noting about the risk factor, that for something like Social Security, you really want to ensure that people are getting their consistent checks every month because that is really what you're counting on at, at that point to ensure you're able to get by. And so moving towards more of a, a high-risk approach could carry a lot of dangers. In contrast with the Universal Social Wealth Fund, 
that's something where the idea is this is this is getting my fair share of the success of our economy and country as a whole, but it's not something where, at least in the early stages, you would necessarily assume that it's going to be a very regular, consistent amount. Mm-hmm. It's just supposed to recognize that this this is your piece of of how of our economic success, and so having something that is slightly more high risk, but over the long term higher returns is perhaps a, a better approach to ensure more just sharing of. of the economy. What about the the question of, well, there are people who haven't really added to the economic health and vitality of America. Why should, why are they, and I hate to use this word, deserving? How would you respond so to that? that is actually, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I would say that's actually really at the core of the idea of a social wealth fund is that trying to identify who in our society is and is not deserving is actually a fool's mission, that if you look at why people today are able to achieve the economic success they are, it is built upon generations of previous work by people all across the country, and that everything, every success we have is actually some degree of a collective effort, and that while, sure, you could try to go back and parse, okay, whose ancestors contributed this and that to any given effort, what's actually a much more productive way to look at it is that we succeed as society as a whole. And so that is the premise of this, is that because there is this, this collective contribution to all economic success, that there's also this collective reward. And so that this is something that every American just deserves because they're American. Fascinating. It sure is different. If you just tuned in, listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and this is a group effort, believe me, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Jim Pugh, co-founder of the Universal Income Project, and we're talking about his article called The Case for Giving Every American a Share of a Public Wealth Fund. And you talk about democratizing economic growth. What does that mean? It's certainly not democratic now. What do you mean by that? So part of that is is the idea that everyone is, is going to participate in the economic growth. And so the, the dividends and, and the share of that public wealth fund being the way that everyone participates. But beyond that, with a social wealth fund, one aspect of it that I would say actually is very important to the model is the idea that because everyone is a partial owner in this fund, everyone should have a say in how that wealth is influencing decision making in the country. So we're all shareholders. And so right now, if you have, if you own stock in a company, you get some degree of shareholder voting rights. Right. And so you're able to have a vote as to who's on the board of directors of that company. And what are the general governing principles there? That's something that through a share of a social wealth fund, which is then invested in many, many companies, could also be conferred to everyone in the country. And so it then allows you to create some sort of democratic process, whether that's direct democracy or whether that's through something like proxy voting, where, where you might say, oh, I, I really care about the environment. I want the Sierra Club to 
decide what sort of policies they think are important for corporate America. You then have that say in how companies in the country are operating. And so it creates this aspect of public influence in, in these industries that we really don't have in the economy that exists today. Well, we're not all financial analysts. We're not all skilled at that. When I invest my money, yeah, I rely on experts who can thoroughly analyze opportunities, you know, as I guide that person to avoid certain enterprises which, say, make weapons or pollute or not what I consider to be socially responsible. But I do rely on experts within parameters that I set. You call for, quote, as part of their ownership share, every American adult could be given a voice in deciding fund investment decisions. Doesn't that carry kind of, you know, fiduciary risks? I mean, not everybody is skilled at this kind of thing. I think what you pointed out is exactly right, which is it doesn't make a lot of sense for every person to be going down to the nuts and bolts of what dollar goes here, what dollar goes there. But it is important to have those overarching guidelines that determines, oh, these are the sorts of companies that we should be investing in, and these are not. And so, for example, if a majority of the American public decided that investing in private prisons, which are detaining children at the border, is not something that they are comfortable with, Mm. then they could say, this is now a new rule of the fund. We do not put money into that sector, while not, again, going down to the level of saying, we want 20% of our money in this company, 5% over here, and so on. And so you you would want to have these fund managers who are experts in the field of how you can put your money out there for a good return while ensuring that you're not doing that in a morally objectionable way. I like that idea. And certainly if there were (laughs) democratic involvement in uh, foreign policy and making war, uh, we would have a lot fewer wars. And I kind of like that idea. But we don't get to participate in that right now. I mean, the, the war makers certainly wouldn't want any democratic involvement in it. But that's straying a little bit off our subject. You say... With this idea, when the economy does well under this program, it benefits everyone, not just the very wealthy. All right, what about when the economy tanks? <laughs> Do we all stand to lose? I mean, honestly, with a program like this, if, if the economy takes a dive, it's going to mean that those dividends are smaller. And so it's something, as I said, unlike Social Security, where you really want to have know exactly how much you're getting every month, this is something that could vary over time. And so it really wouldn't be a replacement for other programs that are in place to ensure income stability. It is a way of gain sharing, but as, as you note, when there aren't as many gains, that means that will be lower. One thing that can help a little bit with this is that there is actually a model for how this can work here in the United States already which is the state of Alaska. They have their social wealth fund there, which they've built up from their oil reserves over the past 40 years, and they pay out an annual dividend to every member, every resident of the state. Right. And the way that they calculate how much to give people is they'll average the returns over the past five years. And so if there is a dip just one year, that means you may still get a decently sized dividend but it will, it will mean it's slightly smaller because 
you are you are sharing the rewards, but also sharing in the risk of of our economic growth. Sounds very interesting. And Alaska is certainly not known as a, any kind of a, a socialist or communist republic. <laughs> you know, I, I find yeah, that no. interesting, and I, I wonder, you know, how. I, People on the right don't like big government. They don't like, you know, social welfare programs. Uh, and I'm thinking this may actually uh, uh, resonate with people on the right because, uh, you know, it there wouldn't be uh, uh, bureaucracies deciding, you know, who is deserving and who is not. Uh, it would allow the individual. I mean, it's not, you know, and, and certainly there are, and maybe we can go right to this. Is in 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 Africa, there's a uh, you know sort of an image of you know charity of Americans helping poor people, giving them what we think they need, huh. and it doesn't always work out so well. You know, it has to do with their uh, uh, sense of uh, decency too. You know, uh, and and to be handed a you know something. Uh, from somebody else. It's charity. People don't want charity so much. And for example, Kenya has some very poor people. Silicon Valley businesses have invested in a universal basic income there. And there's a great quote from a widow in Kenya about how it has worked. I wonder if you could read us that quote, please. It's very revealing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. The quote says, I'll deal with three things first urgently. The pit latrine that I need to construct, the part of my house that has been damaged by termites, and the livestock pen that needs reinforcement so the hyena gets nothing from me on his prowls. That's great. She gets to decide. And, it, you know, when, when, if, if, if you don't trust the people to make decisions, well, that's one thing. You give them what you give them and they get what they get. And that's all there is. But it may or may not work particularly well. You know, there have been lots of programs throughout history where what's given out to the people in charity it doesn't help at all. You know, the people are like, what are you giving us this for? We need something else. Let us decide. And I think maybe that's why people on the right might actually go for this. It, it's, it's different from a, I don't know, I mean, it, it, from a, a normal image of a, of a lefty kind of thing. Uh, in that it uh, values individuals, which is, of course, what America is about. And you write that because everyone would own a share, there wouldn't be any us versus them split that allows and encourages a small group to maximize profits by externalizing costs on others. Now, we can all think of, end of quote, we can all think of examples of uh, businesses making a lot of money uh, and they don't have to pay for the trash that they create. You know, there's a lot of plastic out there. And, you know, so there's certain significant factors that are not put into the quotient here that really should be. So how does it affect, uh, as you say, uh, uh, that allows and encourages a small group to maximize profit by externalizing costs onto others? How does what you're talking about address this problem? I think you really nailed the main point, which is we really have entire industries today that their profit model is built on externalizing the real cost of what they're doing onto others. Yes. And because the owners of those companies aren't aren't part of that group, 
there isn't any real incentive. And, and oftentimes, I, I think there's not even real recognition of, of what they're doing to some degree, that it's <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. Yes. And so because of that, you, you have these models that end, end up building on themselves. People continue to invest there, continue to do more. And it's, it can be doing massive harm to our society as a whole because they're, they're not creating value. They're actually creating damage. Yes. If everyone in the country is a partial owner in that company and they have voting rights, any company that's doing that, those, those partial owners are going to make it very known what actually is going on there or, and are going to, certainly with their voting share, but, but I would say, I, I think with the voice that's, also endowed through that voting share, going to push back hard against any model that does that. And so I think through that, that provides much more accountability. It, it provides uh, a framework that should hopefully either steer companies away from that direction or for companies that are, that are fully premised on that, uh, this, this growing fund should, uh, should make it more and more difficult for, for that business model that they're pursuing to exist. Well, if you don't include packaging, effects of packaging, and you're just making the money from it, I think of a giant like Amazon, uh, you know, it's not a realistic uh, economy at that point. And, and, you know, some person making all the money, while a lot of us pay the cost of cleaning it up, yeah, got a little problem with that. Now, you write, because no one could withdraw their share of wealth fund social wealth fund shareholders would not be incentivized to vote for short-term gains at the expense of long-term prosperity. That's an interesting point. Please say more about that. If you look at right now, a lot, have a lot of investments are made in our, our current stock markets, oftentimes it's done with the assumption going in that the money will be invest in the company for a relatively short period of time. Right. I mean, these days it could be incredibly short, yeah. a day or less. If, right. But it, it, it's, it's not, the investments are not being done with the perspective of what is the company that over the long term is going to have economic success. It's what do I expect the stock to do today, tomorrow, maybe next month or the next six months. And so if that is, is your investment perspective, then the shareholders that exist today that are voting aren't going to be prioritizing company decisions that are actually good over the long term. Mm -hmm. They're going to be saying, what can I do to make a buck today? Mm -hmm. And then I'll pull out and be gone. Mm -hmm. If you have this fund that is having these more long-term investments that is supposed to be creating this return over decades and multiple decades for people, or eventually multiple centuries even, maybe, mm -hmm. then there's going to be less of an incentive for, for making that quick buck and pulling out and more of an incentive to be putting money into companies and, and encouraging them to take approaches that are more sustainable, that, are, that, that can go over the long term and, and have continued success rather than grabbing what they can and then heading out. I'm reminded of a cartoon I saw. It must have been in the New Yorker. A bunch of guys sitting around a fire saying, yeah, we destroyed the earth, but man, we made a lot of money. <laughs> no, and they got nothing left. And uh, oh, it was fun while it lasted. Well, the rest of us, we have children, you know, it's not the best pay picture. It's not the best perspective, 
to look at. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're having an interesting discussion today about real alternative, the case for giving every American a share of a public wealth fund. Our guest is Jim Pugh, co-founder of Universal Income Project. And it does seem that capitalism, as we have known it, requires a belief in scarcity. There's only so much good. There's not enough to go around. And but as you say, we have constructed enough homes to house every American. We produce enough food to feed ourselves twice over. We have an abundance of resources at our disposal. Our nation is richer than ever before, but most Americans aren't sharing in those riches. End of quote. What you're talking about, is there a recognition that the old notion of scarcity here in the 21st century may longer apply? And that's a big one if, if it's you know, not there anymore. I think that is a really important point, and I think you. I think that's right. I think that the way that it makes sense to view our economy and and what we produce has been shifting, and will continue to shift. And so we are. I, I think we're in this this transition process because there certainly are plenty of things out there that still are scarce, but. These basic necessities, food, shelter, clothing, there isn't any reason at this point why everyone shouldn't have that, because we do have enough. And so thinking about how do we adapt our economic models and our social models to shift and and to allow people to, to then participate in that abundance, I think this is a really important time to do that. And it's not something where we're going to be able to flip a switch and suddenly have an entirely different way of operating. So we are going to need to think about what are these transition policies Mm. and that this really will be something that we're going to have to figure out as we go along. But having a recognition of of that abundance is, I, I think, so critical, particularly because we have become mired in this austerity view of the economy. Oh, yeah when we're talking about our national budget and so on, the idea that, oh, we don't have enough, when that's just factually not true, having more of that conversation about, oh, we do have enough, we do actually have more than enough in these areas, and how do we, how do we adjust the way that we live to be able to, to take advantage of that? You're making me think about, uh, oh, organizations like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank who, who impose austerity programs on people so that the investors can you know, be guaranteed a, a nice return on their investment. But it makes the, the people at effect of the austerity programs really angry. It makes for destabilized governments and causes uh, real, real problems. And I remember uh, many years ago, back in 1976, when the candidate I was supporting for president, Fred Harris, who? Yeah, Fred Harris. That's He didn't make it, obviously. But he was saying, if you draw areas of high crime and high unemployment, you draw on the same map. And I would think this, I mean, when there's scarcity, people are often, often, not always, but often act on desperation. And it causes them to do things that they might not otherwise do and and increase the crime rate. I mean, I hadn't thought about this before, but maybe this would have something to do with, uh, you know, uh, crime. When people have, you know, know that they're going to be able to sleep inside somewhere and have basic necessities. Go ahead. And there actually have been studies of what happens 
when you, you start to give people regular unconditional cash and, and lift them out of poverty. And some of those specifically looked at crime and consistently found a significant decrease. So there actually is evidence to back that up. Oh. Hmm. I'm not surprised. Well, if everyone has enough to get by, what happens to the incentive to work? We have this idea that has become so ingrained that if if you don't put people at risk of falling into deep poverty, that's for, they're going to just stop wanting to work. That is not actually borne <laughs> out by any evidence. And, and as best we can tell, this, this has really been a myth that, that's been built up over time. There have, as I mentioned, been various pilot programs and experiments to assess what happens when you do ensure everyone has right. enough money to cover their basic needs. There's even been some in the U.S. that were run. Uh, you mentioned the attempt under Nixon to push through mm-hmm. a guaranteed income plan. There, there were experiments that were run under him in the U.S. And what they found is that if you ensured everyone got at least the poverty level of income, through an an income supplement, then there is a slight decrease in work, but it's a few percentage points. It's not any sort of mass exodus from the labor market. And really, I mean, if if you take a step back and think about it, if you suddenly were given enough money to cover your basic needs, Mm -hmm. would you stop working? Most people you ask are definitely going to say no. There's Maybe they might change the job they had, because if the work they're doing today isn't something that they right. feel passionate about. Right. But there is this innate desire to, to participate, to contribute, and that's something that we would be shifting, I would say, away from the more scarcity-driven work-to-live perspective to one that is more what people, people pursuing the things that, that actually they feel uh, most excited about. And, and so over the long term, potentially moving towards towards a structure where more important and valuable and uh, and certainly highly motivated work would be getting done. And I would think people would occasionally want to go out to a movie, go out to a restaurant, get some pizza, something like that. People want that, you know, they want more than basic subsistence. As I said in the beginning of the uh, discussion, while it may be an unfamiliar and rather dissonant concept with uh, so different from common economic uh, understanding. What we're talking about is actually a very old idea. There was an experiment in 1795 in the English village of Spenhamland. I think I pronounced that right, Spenhamland. It ended in 1834. What, what do you know about the Spenhamland uh, experiment? What worked and what didn't? And maybe what could be learned from that? So Spenham land system was what was an attempt at looking at a guaranteed income that took place in, in an English village back in uh, the 18th and 19th century. The way it worked is that they there was a lot of laborers there who were working but were still in poverty. And so the village decided, all right, we want to ensure no one's in poverty. And so what we're going to do is we're going to top up the wages of these workers here, and that will ensure everyone has enough. Now, there's, th- there were reports immediately after that were quite negative about the outcomes, people saying that this, uh, this caused people to, uh, well, one, is that it caused 
the, the companies there to actually lower their wages because they knew that they would be topped up by the local government. And then the second thing it said, uh, and, and this I would say is, is highly questionable, is, is it caused people to have a lot more kids. That's actually, there's been further analysis since then to suggest that that was just, there was a natural population growth at the time, so, so there isn't a whole lot of evidence of that. Um, as far as companies lowering their wages, I think an important thing to note about the Spinan land system was that it wasn't actually a universal system. They were giving money to people who were working. And so what that meant is they effectively were shifting power to the local companies because those companies still had to say, we're going to give you a job. And so people there still had to convince the company to give them a job. And then those companies could then lower their salaries as much as they wanted and people would still have to stick there, and their wages would be topped up by the government, but they, they, they were basically in a bind that they had to do that. Whereas in contrast, if you had a fully universal system where you were getting money even if you weren't working, suddenly that would have shifted power to the people there because if the company wasn't going to give them a high enough wage to convince them to be spending 8 or 12 or however many hours a day was the standard at that point, they could just say, well, no, I'm going to go and farm on my own or, or do whatever else. Mm-hmm. And so I think that actually points to an important lesson around the design of, inc- of guaranteed income policies, because if you structure it in different ways, it may actually end up having very different impacts on how you shift power in society and how ultimately the dynamics of our economy and society play out. Interesting. As I think about you know, what people have against what we have for welfare now, they have this image of lazy people not working and having a lot of kids and the rest of us having to pick up the tab for. Uh, how how would this address that very common fear? I mean, I, I don't think it's entirely accurate. Any any comments on that? Yeah, I think that that is that's actually a, a, a big focus of a number of the current basic income pilots that are happening because we, we have this idea in our head of, of the quote-unquote welfare queen that was pushed heavily under Reagan. Yes, indeed. This probably African-American mother who's at home with her many kids, who's getting tons and tons of money in, in welfare checks right. uh, and just mooching out the system. Mm-hmm. People who've looked into this have this. This is, as best anyone can tell, a complete fabrication. Yes, there's no evidence that there's any significant number of people out there who are actually behaving in this way. And so, part of the idea of these unconditional cash basic income pilots is to actually then be able to tell the stories of what really happens when you give people money with no strings attached, because folks who are working in this space say consistently that when people get a bit of extra support, they use it for productive purposes. Mm-hmm. This is also borne out by all the experiments that have been done internationally to date. When people get unconditional cash, they spend it on, on the things they need, going back to the, the quote of the widow in Kenya. And so if we can actually start to paint more of a portrait for what really happens when you give people this extra support, and if, if they are using it for productive, compelling things, maybe that can start to chip away 
at this myth that is, has been baked into the public conscious. Well, yeah, people prefer myths to real history. We all know that. My goodness, it's so much easier, but not real. And we talked a little bit about President Nixon, that old commie lefty. According to Daniel Patrick Moynihan, in his book about Spinum Land, the experiment, uh, he said that was the beginning of a push that led to President Nixon's program, the Family Assistance Plan. That's what Nixon called it. He originally intended that every poor family of four in America with a zero income would receive $1,600 a year, which is the equivalent of about $11,000 today. Not a lot of money. Plus food stamps, the supplement would fade out as earnings increased. He sought to be the president to lift the lower classes. The plan died in the Senate under both Republican and Democratic opposition. The only thing to survive was Nixon's late-breaking Spinomland-inspired fear of being seen to indulge the idle poor. There was a New Yorker article on this issue that said, the idea that people behave more profligately when uh, they're shielded from consequences had become a guiding doctrine of the right. A work requirement stuck around first in earned income tax credit, then in Bill Clinton's welfare reforms. That's the end of the quote from that article. Many of us more traditional Democrats, frankly, were repulsed by Bill Clinton's rather callous welfare program requiring work when there was no work available. I don't believe it was a success. This bears directly on what we're talking about, does it not? I think it definitely does. I think that we have, over the past 40, 50 years now, seen more and more of a shift towards a paternalistic system where we are making people jump through more and more hoops yes. to receive any sort of support. Yes. I think, and, and this has not been a left-right divide. There, there have been right. Republican and Democratic presidents, as you say. Mm -hmm. The welfare reform under President Clinton also was, was moving in that direction. And we certainly see it now under Trump with the new proposals to add work requirements around getting SNAP, food stamps, meta, uh, Medicaid benefits. Those are all things that are, are born out of this idea that if, if you don't put people in this tiny box, they're going to abuse the system. And it's just, it, it doesn't match the evidence at all. That, that is not the way people actually behave. It is just this further re-indoctrination of, of this idea of, right. of who in our society is and is not deserving. Mm -hmm. And, and fear-mongering over, oh, what will happen if, if we don't? tightly control these people that, that are receiving some degree of support. And so that, that really is the perspective that we, we need to move away from. That if, if we stay in that space, we're never going to be able to, to empower and shift the dynamics in this country. We need to move to a place where, where we trust people and we say, use the support, do something good. And, and we know that, that most people will, in fact, do that. And, and that could really be a pathway then out of poverty, out of uh, precarity, if we can create that sort of system. Sounds a lot more stable, I must say, and, and secure. Now, some have suggested that the universal basic, basic income idea may actually be a futurist reply to the darker side of technological efficiency, which we are having. And as inevitably we get more artificial intelligence and more robots replacing traditional jobs, workforce safety nets will be severely strained. 
How might universal basic income address these very worrisome uh, aspects of uh, the future that is happening now? Well, the, honestly, there's a lot we have to figure out around that. If we are, as, as it's becoming more and more clear, I would say, moving towards a place where technology and artificial intelligence are, are really disrupting the traditional modes of work and, and, in some cases, wholesale effectively doing the work that large sectors of people used to do in the past, yes. that has ramifications across every aspect of, of our economy and our society. And figuring out what is our, what is the way people engage with with the world like under that system, is a big big question that I really don't think we even can have a full answer to at this point. But at the very least, if if we recognize that we seem to be moving in that direction, I would say the first thing that we we know is going to be necessary is that we don't want people to fall into desolation. We want to ensure that, because again, those changes are allowing our economy as a whole to grow even faster. Yes. We want to ensure that everyone is, is, has this basic standard and that we, we are providing for everyone. And that's going to make it far, far easier then to figure out what else we need to, to change to ensure that, that people do have a real sense of purpose in this changing economy. Um, as as we see more and more how it manifests and, and how how the world around us is shifting. Fascinating. Many different aspects to it. It's not a magic wand. It's not going to fix everything. That's all recognized. Right. But it's an, a very interesting and uh, useful idea that, you know, will be shifted as it goes along, presuming it does go along. And in terms of paying for it, many, many federal programs are not paid for. We borrow the money. The military is not paid for. The New Deal, the Bush tax cuts, Trump's proposed tax cuts, $1,000 a month going automatically to every American. How much money are we talking about, really? And where would that money come from? So there's different ideas of, of how we fund this. Uh, we talked earlier about the Social Wealth Fund approach, right. the American Solidarity Fund which initially would not be providing anywhere near the level of a basic income. But if over time you did start to shift more and more of our shared gains into that, that you, you could get up to a level where, where you were approaching or eventually reach uh, providing people with something like $1,000 per month. Beyond that, there certainly are programs that I think many of us would, would agree could, could be receiving lower funding in, in our government today. But beyond that, it's, I would say, important to take a step back and look at how much we as a country spend compared to some other countries out there, because U.S. spending is quite a bit lower than a lot of European countries. Um, and if you look at how much we, we tax as a percentage of our gross domestic product, we're trillions of dollars less than some of, some of the folks uh, in, in Europe. And so, who have very strong economies in today's world. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I think that we don't necessarily just need to look at, oh, how can we slice and dice what we're already spending? I think that's falling into the austerity thinking trap. Mm. Instead, if we take that abundance perspective and, and looking at our economic growth, saying that, oh, we, we want to spend an extra trillion or two trillion dollars, which if, if, you, if you were to give everyone a thousand a month, um, Probably along with that, you're going to want to tax that away for higher income folks since 
there's not really any reason they need a, a supplementary salary. Mm-hmm. So the net, net cost of, of transferring that amount to, to people so that you're ensuring that, that they're being brought up by, by $1,000 a month um, if they're below medium income is somewhere on the order of, of a trillion dollars. Uh, and so that's something through, through a combination of, of raising taxes on, on wealth on high-income earners through a social wealth fund could be cuts in military. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's actually pretty achievable to, to be able to make that happen. Yeah, there is a tremendous amount of waste here and there, especially in the uh, military welfare system, close to a trillion dollars spent each year anyway. Now, I hear even some of the super rich may find comfort comfort from this idea. How could they be comfortable with this and think it's a good idea? Well, if you if you come to the recognition that the way that the direction we're moving in and and you could argue the world run today really is not working for a growing chunk of Americans, at some point you really can't have a functioning society and an economy in that world, if if people are being pushed too far into poverty and into precarity, you can't. If you're a business owner, you count on people being able to buy your products. You count on having a stable government and, and society around you to be able to succeed. And so, if if you're looking ahead and and seeing that the way we do things now just isn't sustainable, then that's a strong motivator to, to say, all right, well. We need to do something. This may mean I have to pay more today, but if that is going to allow me to be successful over the long term, uh-huh. then that's worth it. And so I think that that's a perspective that you've seen amongst, again, more forward-looking yes. uh, business executives, wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that is where I would say we're, we're starting to see some support for the system there. I do think that it's important as, as I mentioned earlier, the way you design the system is very important to, to actually ensure that it empowers people. And so making sure that how we actually structure this policy, looking to the people who are most marginalized today, yes. as far as what's really going to empower them, is, is important as opposed to taking our cues from, from those wealthy folks who, who may be generally supportive. But it, interestingly, mm-hmm. unlike a lot of other proposals, you do see, um, you do see a, a lot of the one percent actually uh, expressing interest and, and potentially support for something like universal basic income. I can imagine because they think long term too, and you know it's it's not like we haven't been subsidizing uh, big companies like Facebook uh, at and a whole bunch of interests uh, at a significant cost to taxpayers since really the nineteen seventies. This is not a new idea. It's just you know rather than giving to the few. Uh, sharing the wealth. What a concept. Uh, what do you think the chances are that in the current or foreseeable political climate, this idea can, can grow? In what ways might it actually have appeal to conservatives and even libertarians? We're in an interesting political climate, to put it mildly. Are there people who are championing this in, in Congress? Or, or what do you think its chances are politically? I think that there is that that's frankly something my organization has has been thinking a lot about over the past few years because even as you get more people who are supportive of of a universal basic income there's a big question of of how we actually 
transition to making that happen because it is so different than than the system we we live in today. So there definitely are a number of elected officials who who've gotten interested in this policy over time, but their question is, I mean, how how do we start moving towards that? And so I think going back to the social wealth fund, that's actually an approach that I think could really create a pathway towards ultimately being able to to create this full universal basic income because it's something you can you can start relatively small. You you create this fund, you start diverting some revenue sources into it, you can start building it up. You could even start at the state level. I mean, we already have this example in Alaska. And so if other states were to say, all right, let's look at wealth concentrations in our states and and how we can ensure that we're doing gain sharing with our respective economies, that's something that can really build on itself over time. And so if you start to get to the point where people are are, are getting used to these regular unconditional cash checks every year or, or more frequently, then you can start to really ease into a place where you can then say, all right, well, we know how this works. Let's now go that extra mile and, and give everyone, uh, ensure that everyone is getting a, a level of unconditional cash that allows them to cover their basic needs. Yes, and to give people individual uh, con- more control over their lives. And people get really frustrated when they feel like they have no power, no say. They're all at effect. They're never at cause of their lives. And I think this, it's got to help quite a bit. And for many decades, certainly there's been a diversion of profits from workers to shareholders from the bottom to the top. Uh, it certainly would not, this idea, it would certainly not make all income equal. That's not the goal, of course. But if all of us have a stake in the economy, what might that actually do to these you know, tremendous levels of income inequality that I think dwarf the uh, Gilded Age of the 1890s. Well, how how could this affect that? Wouldn't make everything flat for sure. No, there would still there would certainly still be different levels of income. It's uh, I mean we're not talking about fundamentally changing the way that markets and the economy operate on top of that, but it does it ensures that we we pull up people from the bottom. And through something like the social wealth fund, it also ensures that these these great concentrations of wealth that have been built up, more good chunks of those would would be moved into this this public wealth space. And so that I mean, if you look at then what is beyond the dividend that you're getting from it, if you're looking at what is your share of that public wealth, that over time could could be a pretty substantial amount. And so effectively through that, we we would be decreasing that, that growing inequality hmm. uh, and, and hopefully counteracting a lot of the negative effects that have been coming along with that. Hyper-inequality. Yeah, we've had that. Well, from the website, it says, we at the Universal Income Project believe that raising awareness and support are the most effective ways to push forward basic income in the United States right now. An informed and supportive population will be key to passing any future policy. So how are you going about making the idea become reality? What can listeners do? Well, at this point, I would say going going online and, and looking at the other resources out there because, honestly, there's been so much work that people have done over the past years, people writing, looking at this from different perspectives, yes. what this will do for racial justice, what this can do for gender justice, how this ties into indigenous communities, uh, how this 
could affect entrepreneurship. And so starting to educate yourself more as to what what's actually up with this idea and, and how it could transform things. And then beyond that, I, at this point, I think it's really a lot about having conversations, like t- talking to those around you about this, getting the word out. Uh, as, as you noted at the beginning, that even though this idea has been picking up steam, it's still not really fully in the public consciousness yet. Yeah, for sure. And so starting to just have more conversations and also looking at if there's opportunities to do local advocacy. If, if members of your city council or members of your state government, if you have connections there, sharing this idea with them, asking them what they think, seeing if, if your city might want to do a pilot as is being pursued now in Chicago and Stockton and Jackson, Mississippi, and seeing if, if members of, of your state government might be interested in pursuing something like the Social Wealth Fund, because I, I would say to, the thing that's really going to be the game changer on if this happens is if we can have this big grassroots movement that builds up across the country. And so that's something that we can all take part in, in making happen. Absolutely. And seeing how there's a lot of people on this thing called the Internet, what, what websites can you point people to? Universal Basic in, or Universal Income Project? What, what websites, please? Yeah, we're at universalincome.org if you want to check out our site and sign up there. Uh, also on Facebook, uh, you can follow us and we'll post key updates as to what's going on in the space. Uh, beyond that, basicincome.org is an international basic income movement. Um, that's just looking at how it's uh, advancing in different countries. Um, yeah, I would say those are great places to start. All right, and again, yours is the Universal Income Project? Yes, it, that's right? right. All right, well, thank you so much. Very informative, very stimulating. Maybe it can stimulate the economy, dare I say, and, <laughs> and stabilize it. Jim Pugh, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live, and uh, I hope people thanks. explore this. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right. Ciao.